Welcome to the July 2022 Think Anesthesia podcast. I'm Karen Kerr, a technical services veterinarian with Jurox, and I'm joined today by the wonderful Jenny Casabray-Fisher, RVT and VTS in oncology, who's going to share some of the key differences between performing anesthesia for radiation therapy compared to for surgical procedures. Jenny's experience includes 14 years as the head oncology technician at LSU Veterinary Teaching Hospital at the Cancer Treatment Unit. Jenny is passionate about education and has lectured on the regional and national level, as well as to both veterinary and veterinary technician students. Currently, Jenny is the president-elect for the Academy of Internal Medicine for Veterinary Technicians, or AIMVT, and an active member in the Veterinary Cancer Society. She works as the education director for PractiVet and as a consultant for many private practices and universities in their oncology departments. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jenny. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I I hope my voice sounds half as good as yours does on recording. (laughs) Hey, we're both working the accents. Let's start by thinking a little bit about some of those differences between anesthesia for radiation and for surgery. And what are some of the main points you think really vary here? Well, first off, I want to say thank you so much to Jurox for bringing this topic specifically because it's obviously something working in the radiation realm that I have learned a lot about and had a lot of experience. And just as a precursor, I am a VTS oncology, not VTS anesthesia. So this is a really great way to take your brain, all of the anesthesia stuff, and then really look at specifics as far as the radiation therapy side is concerned. And I think probably the biggest thing that I really tried to not only impress to veterinary students that I taught, but technicians that I teach as well, is that the goal of our anesthesia, when we're talking about radiation versus surgical, our goal is very different, right? So that goal, keeping that goal in mind, where we're talking about a surgical plane of anesthesia, completely different depth or level of anesthesia, as well as we may have things like visceral pain that we're not going to have we're doing radiation therapy. So really keeping the goal of what you're doing in mind, you know, with radiation therapy, there are so many myths out there. And just because they're scared of it, they don't really want to learn about it. Right. So that whole fear thing. And a lot of times just being able to educate them on the process of radiation, how it's not painful. If we cause pain to that patient, it's typically because the tumor itself is painful or because maybe we place them in an uncomfortable position. So this would be our dogs with arthritis or hip dysplasia. Those are going to be the patients that are uncomfortable if we put them in a certain way on the table. So the radiation itself is not painful. We simply need them still. We need to make sure that those patients are perfectly still for a period of time. So probably the biggest thing for me is know your goal of your anesthetic procedure, what you are trying to achieve, and know that that goal of radiation therapy anesthesia is much different than surgical anesthesia. That's a great point. I had never thought of it that way. Um, So given that you're probably seeing less pain, how does that affect your protocols or drugs that you're using? 
That's an excellent question. And this was something that working in a teaching hospital with veterinary students, they come off their anesthesia, their surgery rotation, and then they come into oncology and they want to take everything that they've learned about those surgical cases and apply it, which is fantastic. But again, that goal is different. With our radiation therapy patients, so many times they are getting treatment every single day. And that can be every day of the week for four or five consecutive weeks using long-term, longer acting drugs, especially a lot of our opioids don't really do well in these patients because the procedure itself is usually anywhere from about seven to 25 minutes. So very, very short. A lot of times your anesthetic induction and recovery actually takes longer than the actual radiation delivery. We try to get these patients home because they're coming back the next day. We're going to see them again. So if it takes them a good eight hours to recover from that anesthetic episode, late at night, mom's looking at their pet and they're going, my gosh, you're just so sleepy and not necessarily a bad sleepy, a good sleepy, but to the pet parent, they can interpret that as the pet not handling that well, or the pet not bouncing back as quickly. So unfortunately, in my experience, I have seen pet parents who had some of those experiences where the pet maybe was administered something that was a little longer acting, where they start questioning their decision to go forward with radiation therapy, just because of the effects of the anesthesia. And it certainly plays a key factor in making that decision. But if we as anesthetists can choose a protocol that we know for something that's not going to be painful. It's not going to be stimulating. We just want them still, right? And comfortable for that period of time. But when that procedure is done, we want them awake and we want them out of the door as quickly and as safely as possible. So certainly judging your protocol based upon how fast those procedures are, that they're going to be back tomorrow, and that we really want them to return to as much a normal function as possible, literally within two to four hours following the procedure. That's a really interesting point. And I can completely see that from the other side. If your pets come home and it's not acting normally, it's going to be hard to just show up again the next day and take that same pet in and be like, is it going to be worse today? That is a really, really interesting difference, not something we think about so commonly in a lot of our surgical cases. So what kind of drugs are you reaching for then? We use a lot of butorphanol. We use a lot of alfaxin and propofol. Those short-acting induction agents, and this is one of the frustrating things is there is no standardization of radiation anesthesia across the board. I, I wish there would be. I would love for that to happen. I have seen it done much differently at different locations. Anytime I am involved with those cases, I typically choose something. If I have a patient that is painful, maybe has a lot of arthritis, maybe they have an oral tumor and I'm having to open that mouth for a period of time. So something short acting like a butorphanol, but also remember most of these cases kids are at home on oral medications as well. So they might already be on oral pain meds, oral anti-inflammatories to treat their cancer. So I'm not always having to give them a bunch of stuff at the time of the anesthetic procedure because they're already maintaining on those oral medications at home. So that also helps take that load off per se of adding something into that anesthetic protocol. I'm always going to establish an airway. Every single one of my patients are intubated, cat, dog, um, uh, 
not a frog, but all of my small animal and companion animals are certainly going to be intubated. So short-acting anesthetics induction agents. So alfaxin's fantastic for this. Absolutely love it. Propofol is fantastic as well. One of the things that I do like about propofol is sometimes we can see that appetite stimulant effect and that in our nasal tumor patients that can't smell their food, you use a little volume while they're asleep. They wake up really, really hungry. So if we have a patient that's not eating because they can't smell their food because of a nasal tumor, I would look at something like that to add into that anesthetic protocol to hopefully stimulate that appetite when they awake as well. Then induce them, intubate them, and then maintain them on gas anesthesia, inhaling anesthesia. And I know that we use a lot of our pre-meds to decrease the amount of gas that we use. And I totally agree with you on that point. Where we don't tend to get into much of a pickle is because our duration is so short, right? Because we're only looking at 20 25, 30 minutes max that these patients are actually under that general anesthesia. So I agree that I want to reduce the, as much amount of gas anesthetic as possible. But again, our goal is much, much different. And what is going to have these patients return to a normal state of consciousness and get them out of the hospital as quickly as possible. So typically it's a short acting induction agent, intubate them, maintain them on gas anesthetic and oxygen therapy as well. And it does make a big difference, that duration of action. I'm sure a lot of your patients are recovering still towards the end of alfaxalone or propofol action. So that makes sense. And you're speaking straight to my heart when you say you always maintain an airway. Nothing scares me more than watching something deeply, deeply sedated slash actually anesthetized and intubated. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these patients also have airway tumors, right? So a lot of times Mm -hmm. we have laryngeal tumors and we have upper lower airway tumors, nasal tumors. And these patients, when you start inducing them, if you can't breathe, if you've ever had that feeling, it's a horrible panic feeling. And especially my nasal tumors, when you start inducing those kids and they start trying to take a breath, especially through an airway that they can't breathe through, they start to panic. So a lot of times I feel like, especially for my airway tumor patients, that induction might be a little bit more rapid um, than in some of those other patients, just because I want to avoid them not being able to catch a breath because of their lesion or tumor. Yeah, that's an extra dimension I haven't really thought of either. And we definitely know that panic during induction is not conducive to a nice smooth anesthetic or recovery. And it's interesting to me how much both of our sides, because I have no experience personally with radiation therapy, but that we both really do focus on recoveries, even though the drugs we're using and how we're doing things are quite different in both fields, that does become that really important part. And in any situation, getting those patients home, acting like their normal selves makes such a difference. On the topic kind of that panic you mentioned, you're seeing these patients, you said weeks and weeks, sometimes every day. How do you find that affects them behaviorally? What efforts do we try and make to keep them low stress? That is an excellent question. 
in the radiation therapy world, especially in the universities and hospitals that I've worked in, we try very, very hard to make sure that those patients associate coming to the hospital as a joyous occasion. Typically, we do that with lots of fear-free type of handling techniques, as well as lots of treats. I'm not going to lie. Lots of food motivation. Um, We also make sure we talk to the pet parents if we have some pets that are toy-driven or even owner-driven. Let's say the only thing they get excited about is mom and dad. So we get mom and dad involved, right? I had one case that it was a little terrier and was not, not food motivated, not toy motivated. The only thing that made this little dog happy was seeing his dad, not mom, but dad. And so literally we would recover this dog in a playpen and carry it into the room where dad was sitting waiting and we would literally take him place him in dad's arms so as soon as he was awake now we were there monitoring everything we would often have oxygen with us as well but monitoring and as soon as that patient was extubated he was placed in dad's arms so as soon as he was awake the first person he saw was his dad so really just trying to work and make sure within the confines of what we do have available and what they are motivated by, we make sure that we try to make it a happy experience. In my 17 years of cancer therapy and veterinary medicine, I have maybe seen a handful of cases that actually did not like coming to the hospital. The majority of them truly start to associate it with a positive, happy experience. And we make it quick, right? We want them to come in. It's happy. They get on the table. They take a little nap. They wake up and they get treats again. And then they get to go home. So we really truly do try to make it a relaxing experience for them. Because as you mentioned, that stress is certainly not going to be conducive to their overall healing as well. So keeping that mind mindset and keeping it surrounded by joy, trying to make sure that they get the best healing as they possibly can. I love surrounded by joy. I want to put that up on my wall. That's my version of live, laugh, love. I love how much you're looking at what motivates that particular patient, because we do know some animals are so food motivated, whereas others just don't really care about that. I have a dog that when he went into a heart procedure, pulmonic stenosis, had a little toy. The clinic was kind of, you know, we can't promise you'll get it back. Like it was $5. You can throw it out if you lose it. And they said the entire time he was in there, he cuddled with it. He recovered cuddling it and it smelled like his home. So being that flexible and thinking about those things does really make a difference to our patients and to their parents, the people who love them. Do you have any particular tips and tricks you'd like to share on positioning for some of these tricky procedures? And also, if you have patients with osteoarthritis, is there like the ability to position them a little bit while still achieving the, the goal? Great questions. Again, these are fantastic. So really important when we're talking about positioning is the type of therapy and the type of radiation that will be delivered. So when people think, oh, it's a machine and I don't need to know about it. You do, you Mm -hmm. actually do, because that's very important is the type of radiation that's going to be delivered. So there are some courses of therapy where we're going to use a computer plan where the computer is going to generate a, a dose. And then there are other types where we 
do what we call a hand calculation or the radiation oncologist does that calculation by hand and it's not generated from a computer plan. If we are using that computer-based planning, they are required to have a CT scan beforehand and they are positioned at the time of CT in the position that's going to be most conducive and most repeatable for therapy. That is the point of time where you have to commit to a position. So if you have a patient, you know, have osteoarthritis and hip dysplasia, that's not the patient I'm going to splay their hips Mm -hmm. for CT, right? That's the patient I'm going to take a nice little pad and flip their hips and put them on a nice little pad. Well, guess what? That pad has to be the same exact pad for the next six weeks. So everything has to be exactly the same. If you tape an ear over, that ear has to be taped at the same exact angle in the same exact place every single time. So if it's a computer-based plan, you have to pick your position and stick with it throughout the duration of therapy. If it is a hand-based plan, sometimes there is a little bit more potential leeway. Now, when I say leeway, I'm talking millimeters. Okay. So In theory, can we move it a little bit? Potentially, Um, but if we are, we're talking about a a two to three millimeter move. We're not talking about a completely changed position. So planning ahead is the key there. It's vital, absolutely. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. And, and if you're an anesthetist on one of those cases and you're like, I don't know anything about anesthesia, go talk to the person on the case and say, hey, what type of machine is this? What type of planning is going to be done? Where is the tumor located? If it's in the head, on the head, neck or oral cavity, we may have to use something called a bite block where we actually place the patient's mouth onto a block that holds it stable. That can affect your ET tube and your airway. So all of these things, you know, where is the tumor located? Is there going to be a positioning device? All of these things can affect your anesthetic protocol and your plan and how you enact that plan. So it's very important to ask all of those questions about the radiation itself. So again, it's coming back to communication. If we're not sure, learn something. I love when it's something I'm really not familiar with, finding that person and hopefully interviewing them for a podcast because this is fun. (laughs) But otherwise, just asking them a question, which means I'll probably call you if I'm ever in that situation. So thanks, Jenny. I'm okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) Um. I wanted to step away a little bit from the anesthesia and the radiation specifically to a question that kind of comes to my mind when I think of this, of dealing with oncology, which is what are some of the most commonly missed signs of neoplasia you come across? Oh, probably the most common things that we see that are missed are going to be abdominal cavity type tumors. So it's just going to be those nonspecific, right? Just not as doing as well as he used to be, not as active, just kind of slowing down. Because if there are tumors on the outside, a lot of times we can see those and those are brought to our attention, but it's those other tumors that are those slow growing tumors that we can't really see a lot of times, which is why it's so important to see your veterinarian at least once a year for those annual checkups, especially in our older pets. Absolutely. That's a great point. 
then speaking of some of the interesting positions you've had to place patients in or kept them comfortable in, what's the most difficult or I guess interesting lesion that you've had to position a patient for radiation? So uh, I have a couple that come to mind, but probably the most interesting species from a positioning standpoint are things that are really small. So I've actually radiated a couple of pet mice that had mammary tumors. Mammary cancer is very common in mice. The radiation was much more expensive than the mouse was, um, but they were very attached to little Agatha. And so because the patient is so small with the radiation machine, our collimator where we reduce the field size is only so small. And so we had a difficult time just because Agatha was so small. So from a species standpoint, that was pretty difficult. Um, from a positioning anesthesia it's gonna be airway tumors. So a lot of those laryngeal tumors, tonsillar tumors, where we're having a really tough time getting airway established, those can be the trickiest. And we certainly have had instances where we have to have emergency tracheostomies. And then that adjusts our radiation and our positioning because now the head's in a different position. So those can be very tricky from a positioning standpoint. Um, and anytime we have a tumor kind of over the chest, so our lungs don't really like to be radiated. They don't really do well. So anytime you have, especially a deep chested dog, like a sight hound, and we may have a tumor on the chest wall, those are very difficult to position as well. So probably those two are probably the trickiest, you know, brain tumors, head and neck tumors, limbs, those are easy. Um, absolutely easy. Yeah. But those laryngeal tumors and then the skin tumors over the chest are the difficult. Absolutely. And those patients that are smaller than half of the tumors you see, that's a challenge. I was reading a paper the other day about an axolotl who underwent radiation therapy. And hey, that would be amazing. Sounded like a fun room to be in. Yeah. So I've toads, frogs, ferrets, birds, hornbills, parrots, lots of stuff from the zoo. I've given chemotherapy to a jaguar, um, but never a large cat with radiation. But yeah, lots of birds, lots of cloacal tumors, actually. Interesting cloacal yeah. tumors. That's, yeah. What's the biggest patient you can think of that you've done radiation on? Uh, the largest patient was a mastiff, and she was about 200, 212 pounds. I had an osteosarcoma. The radiation table at the two universities where I work were a small animal table, so they could only accommodate up to 400 pounds. I would love to go to some of these radiation facilities that have these large animal tables. I think that would be incredible, but unfortunately, I haven't seen that yet. But I would love. What are some of the differences you've seen? Because you've been doing this a little while. You said you've been in oncology for 17 years now. I bet you've seen a few things change quite a bit over that time. What are some oh. of the biggest innovations? And is there anything you're seeing on the horizon that you're excited about? Probably, honestly, the biggest change has been in the chemotherapy space in oncology, just from the handling guidelines. When I was originally trained in oncology, we didn't use closed system transfer devices. We weren't even always preparing in a biosafety cabinet. Um, we were administering in the room with owners and students. And so just the safety guidelines specifically as far as affecting veterinary medicine have changed dramatically um, since 
the late 90s. And um, so that's been a really positive and welcome change. As far as on the radiation therapy side, we've certainly seen new machines. So things like stereotactic radiosurgery, cyber knife, gamma knife, all of these things you hear in the human space that we're now able to do in the veterinary space. And obviously those machines and the software that run them are very expensive. Um, but to have that ability now is, is pretty amazing. I've always said radiation is amazing. I've seen, I've seen patients that I truly never, ever thought would walk out of the door, not only walk out the door, but live well and live well for two, four, five, and six years. So it has absolutely blown my mind of some of the things that I've seen it do. That's going to bring some job satisfaction. Oh, it's the best. One of my favorite tumors to treat are brain tumor patients. It's because when they present, a lot of times they're very dull, their mentation, they're not acting the same. Mom and dad say, oh, their personality is different. They don't play with the ball. And a lot of times that's not only associated with the tumor, but the inflammation associated with the tumor inside the intracranial pressure being increased. And so as we start treating those patients, it's extremely common for their personalities to come back. And so we always put humor to it. We would always say that like our brain tumor patients started like as pet rocks, right? Cause they're there, <laughs> but there wasn't much of a personality, right? They're just a body. Um, and we would truly start to see their personality. And it was absolutely magical to watch, to see these patients literally be reborn kind of right in front of your eyes and to hear the stories of the pet parents. They're trying to get in the bed again, or they barked at the mailman and they haven't done that in two years. And they'll even say, he hasn't gotten into the trash in two years. It's like, oh, that's so good though. You know, right. um, hopefully not a phone buddy, um, <laughs> but just being able to see them reconnect with their pet. Um, it's amazing to watch and it's a gift to watch, but I've seen radiation therapy, save patients, save my own personal dog. Um, and gave me nine months with my brain tumor dog that I would have never had. That's so wonderful. When I asked about the behavioral changes, I hadn't thought of them going the other way and just how amazing and spectacular that must be to watch. My next question was actually going to be asking what drew you to oncology. Well, so funny story, my dog got a brain tumor kind of towards the end of that. So I actually originally took the job straight up being honest here. Um, I took it for the state benefits and the pay because it was in a university and I had no idea that I wanted to do oncology. And if, in fact, the first week I went to work, I was not sleeping and thinking I'd made this huge mistake. And I met a patient, a Labrador with a nasal mast cell tumor, which is not supposed to happen, but he changed my life. He was a patient that arrested after surgery, had to go on a ventilator, ended up having radiation. I thought was never going to get off the ventilator, but he actually went on to live four years past his diagnosis. And he changed my life. His name was Bear. I lecture about him all the time. I think I've um, seen you present about Bear. Yeah. Yeah. So he, um, he changed my life. And once I saw what radiation therapy and cancer treatment did for him, it completely changed who I was and who I was as a veterinary technician. That's amazing. And it sounds like a lot of other patients have there to thank for the wonderful care they got as well. Yeah, it's a pretty great legacy. I, I certainly won't ever let the world forget about him. Since you've really kind of sold us on oncology now, <laughs> if our listeners or me are wanting to learn more about some of these topics, where would they look? 
Um, so certainly feel free to reach out to me. My, you know, email is posted. It's Jenny at practivet.com. I'm always happy to help guide you in an area if you need some answers. And if I don't have them, I can help find you someone who will. So I'm always happy to help, um, especially when it comes to cancer medicine and cancer patients. Thank you so much. And just to finish up, if there's one message you could communicate to the veterinary professionals listening, what might that be? Hmm. Education over fear. I feel like we see it so often and that perfectly described who I was when I met bears. I was absolutely terrified about a subject that I wasn't educated on. And so I made a decision that he wasn't going to make it just based upon my uneducated experience. And it really taught me that it's unfair to not only the pet parents, but to my patients that I treat. Um, if I made these judgments without having all of that education and just to remind ourselves, if you educate yourself on something, a lot of times the fear will melt away. So education over fear, hashtag that. I will hashtag that all day. <laughs> that and by joy. Those are the two things I'm learning. But I completely agree. Everything that's most scary to me is about uncertainty. And just learning about the topic makes such a big difference. So thank you so much for, for bringing all of this to us today. And I love that you're living that mantra day to day as well through your work and involvement in the veterinary community. Thank you listeners for joining. For more continuing education materials, visit thinkanesthesia.education and subscribe to this podcast on any and all podcast platforms. Thank you so much. Ta-da.